Well, hello there, and welcome to Fuds and Film. I'm Drew, and with me tonight, Scott. A pleasure as always. I'd like to, to set a task for you. Me? Not or you, Scott. No, no, not you, Scott. The, 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 the wonderful audience listening to us just now, which is hopefully not just you. <laughs> Name a cinematographer. Okay. Name five. Struggling? I'm sure you're not alone. It's a weird thing, isn't it, that in such a visual medium, the person responsible for actually bringing you the image should be so relatively anonymous. While a good editor behind the scenes can help, when you read a book, there's nothing between you and the author. But cinema is such a complex and collaborative art form that even the most low-budget of independent pieces is likely to have required the efforts of multiple people. Yet, for many, few names beyond the director are known. Lists of the greatest and most influential cinema photographers include such names as the great Italian Vittorio Storaro, the leading cinematographer of the Mexican Golden Age, Gabriel Figueroa, Conrad L. Hall, and Citizen Kane's DP, Greg Toland. How many of those names could most people bring to mind, though? Hall, perhaps? Occasionally, a cinematographer will become more well-known amongst the general audience, often because of their repeated collaborations with a particular director. For example, Janusz Kaminski with Steven Spielberg and the brothers Cohen's regular collaborator, Roger Deakins. It's this last we're going to focus on today. Um, Deakins, who as well as being my favourite DP, is, thanks to the Coens, the first that I can well call being truly aware of. Devon native Deakins began his film career in the early 80s, working with his former schoolmate Michael Radford, and it was there that he pioneered the Western use of the bleach bypass technique. In the early 90s, he began his legendary partnership with the Coen brothers, with whom he has now worked on a dozen films, and began his Always the Bridesmaid, Never the Bride run at the Academy Awards, before his third collaboration with the Quebecois director Denis Villeneuve, Blade Runner 2049, finally brought him the shiny wee man. Other awards bodies were, of course, considerably short-sighted. His work is often marked out by high-contrast shots, particularly with sparse lighting, atmospheric silhouettes. For a good example of that, look at the night shots of Skyfall's climax, backlit by fire, and the tendency to shoot with Super 35 spherical lenses in preference to anamorphic lenses. He also rarely uses zoom lenses, preferring to use dollies. More subjectively, there's rarely an ugly shot in any film that he's involved with, unless the film calls for it, and his visuals are consistently well considered and meticulously composed and lit. For this episode, we've chosen seven films, and selecting those was no mean feat. The initial thought we had was to begin our long list with just his award-winning films, but, well, it turns out that's most of them. <laughs> so instead, we've tried to bring you a slice across his career from the early days of 1984's... Well. 1984. <laughs> uh, through the start of his collaboration with the Coens, one of Martin Scorsese's more offbeat choices, and then up to, although actually beginning with, the much lauded 1917. And before I finally let Scott speak, and I'm going to let him, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, yes. It's going to happen at some point. Yeah. I, I apologise in advance for the inevitable disappointment. But before um, such time, uh, I can break down a scene on a technical level and tell you that it uses a wide shot with a dolly in, or an American shot, or a low-angle medium shot with a light pan up and to the left. 
I can even do it in Spanish and have done. But I'm not sure I could tell you why and what effect it has, though I could try. All of that is to say that, though we've chosen films for this episode with the cinematographer in mind, we're strictly aficionados around here, so don't expect anything too different from one of our other episodes. Though we are going to try, and in my case, almost certainly fail, <laughs> to put more emphasis in the discussion on the visuals rather than the script and acting. But before stepping back in time, we're going to begin with 1917. Oh, and, well, I suppose you can hear from Scott now. Yes, although all I'm really going to add is that I am very much... Well, my qualifications for being on a film podcast is very much that I have a microphone. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> don't expect any solid gold nuggets from me, but I'll, I'll do my best. And I, I would say I'm actually as guilty as anyone of attributing the entire work of a film that's not the acting directly to a director as the kind of project manager of it so it's uh, it's interesting to try and unpick that a little bit starting with dps but you, you can apply that just as well to pretty much every other aspect of the technical levels of it uh, perhaps the whole auteur theory is a little bit overplayed in the way that critics talk about films these days it would be nice to give a bit more uh, recognition to everyone else that's working on it as well because it's not just the director who's really <laughs> doing much more than telling people to point. he's pointing the people in the right direction but he's not actually doing the work so you know well i certainly i'm guilty of that at times as well uh, and i'm trying to get better at this that's part of why i like to do this podcast i'm trying to stretch myself in various different ways in terms of yoga. reading films and um yoga yes uh, and the rack for when I'm really <laughs> naughty. And I think one of the reasons that people attribute so much just to the directors, they don't really know how to do it otherwise, or that doing otherwise is really something they should do. Yeah, um, well, I suppose there's a reason film studies courses and university degrees exist, which would equip you with yeah. the language to talk about that, which I've um, done. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but so you can see. I can't immediately think of a better word other than direction. You see the direction of a, of a film from the director. But, <laughs> Funny that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there's probably the two other things I think your regular, fairly casual film, 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 film gore, <laughs> they've managed to make cinnamon film there, film gore, <laughs> might be able to like, separate. It's obviously the acting. Hmm. And I think because the music is so often a very separate thing. Yeah. It is much as like it's clearly a separate medium. Yeah, I don't mean separate from the film. It's a separate discipline. It goes in a different people, bit of your head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think people could maybe like separate that. Yeah, and uh, it'd be easy for people to pick up a, on a John Williams score or something like that in particular. But the two people that make the most films, especially on a big project, massively collaborative hundreds if not thousands of people working on some things depending on level of special effects and things yeah. like that but the two people that make the most difference are the two they probably get the shortest shrift which is the editor and the cinematographer yeah yeah and really the best films are working the director the cinematographer and the editor all three together yeah it's it really is a very collaborative medium and that's the reason why we're doing this now is, I think, you'd understand, it's 1917. But it's just like, just have a slightly different focus and at least try to give some sort of recognition to people like Deacons. Yeah. Because it's a visual medium, so the, the photographer, quite important. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of, 1917 then. Oh, good segue, Scott. Ooh, yes. 
You know, I, I almost thought today I had a little bit of spare time before um, I realised I'd forgotten to put the plot into one of my recaps of this film. <laughs> Oops, that meme brought in. Uh, <laughs> I thought, you know what, for once I'm actually going to try and prepare segues. And I thought, no, that'd be horribly off-brand. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you've made one that's almost appropriate, so... Ugh. Oh, edit that out. (laughs) Disgusting. (laughs) When a film gets so talked up before its release for the unconventional or groundbreaking way that it was shot, or some other feat of filmmaking, then it's easy to become concerned that it's going to be a gimmick and more style than substance. If you missed it, 1917's big thing was that director Sam Mendes and DP Roger Deakins had planned out a film that would appear as one long, unbroken take. Lies! All lies! (laughs) And I'm really hoping Scott will just edit in Frau Verbishner from Austin Powers on there <laughs> so I don't blow out my microphone. Lies. Oh, lies! The protagonist loses consciousness partway through to allow a transition to the time just before dawn. Fakery! Infamy! There's clearly two long unbroken takes. I demand a refund. <laughs> the other danger is that people get hung up on the technical aspects and lose sight of how it serves the story. One of the most notable examples of this being the long steady cam shot in Goodfellas as Henry enters the club with Karen. That was an impressive feat logistically and in terms of performance, but it was how that scene brought Karen and the viewer into Henry's world that mattered. While as a film not as good as Goodfellas, 1917's trick is, I'm pleased to say, just as much in service to the film as, the steady, as that steady cam shot, yeah. though in its case more to tone than story creating a sense of tension, urgency and fluidity that few films can maintain. The story itself is fairly simple. It's 1917. Weird, right? (laughs) And British communication lines have been cut during the German retreat to the Hindenburg Line. An assault in the German positions is planned by the Devonshire Regiment, but they're operating on out-of-date information. Aerial photography shows that, at the risk of sounding like a space fish, (laughs) it's a trap. Colin Firth's General Aaron Moore dispatches Lance Corporal Tom Blake, Dean Charles Chapman, whose brother is a lieutenant in the Devonshires, with an urgent message for the commander to halt the attack or risk the deaths of all 1,600 of his men. It's a desperate run across no man's land and through occupied towns, but speed is key, so he's sent with only a single companion, George Mackay's Will Schofield. One of our heroes dies not long into the journey, the draining of colour from the stricken soldier's skin is one of the most memorable war movie moments I've ever seen, in a film with plenty of them, and the survivor must complete the seemingly hopeless journey alone. The photography, as you might well expect, is incredible, and the choices made help with the story. An early scene has one of the gorbiest and grisliest settings I've ever seen, but the set dressing and the colour temperature prevent it being immediately obvious. It's only after we've been there for a few minutes and the camera moves closer that we can begin to make it recognisable shapes and comprehend just what we're seeing. And then Schofield's hand is put somewhere that is likely to precipitate many a visceral reaction. (laughs) From there, the film moves through verdant fields and bleached, lifeless quarries to a dingy bunker in a spitefully erect cherry orchard, the bright blossom of which is in stark juxtaposition to the death and destruction surrounding it with the colours and lighting varying with, and evoking, both location and mood. In the village of Ecus San Men, where the film commits its great lie, Oh, lies! Oh, lies! Oh, lies! 
Deacons paints a striking scene lit only by flares and fire as Schofield runs towards dawn. There is not a moment of this film not in some way visually interesting. Based on the stories told to him by his grandfather, Alfred Mendes, Sam Mendes, 1917, manages to solve that problem of World War I films, which is that it was in many ways a very static war, with entrenched soldiers and artillery barrages, and only the occasional utterly wasteful and suicidal run against other entrenched soldiers <laughs> with machine guns. In that regard, it is certainly very artificial, but it manages to give a strong flavour of much of the landscape of the war, and much of its horror too. What I would like to do soon is to watch this again and try to turn off the analytical part of my brain. Or at least that part that went in thinking, I am going to jolly well spot all of your transitions, Deacons and Satamendas. <laughs> and spot them I did, I think, or most of them at least. And actually it just added to my appreciation of the film's craft. There's no great trickery, they're just very skillfully done. A fade into darkness as a bunker is entered. The crossing of a wall around an orchard. And because they are so masterfully masked, then most people wouldn't even think about them, let alone see them. And while I appreciate the craft, I do regret that I may have misdirected my attention somewhat. That said, 1917 is much more about tone and action than plot, so I doubt I did myself too much of a disservice. And I still thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes, me too. Like yourself, I was a little bit worried that it could come across as stunt filmmaking, but I was glad to see that for the most part I didn't actually go looking for, well, even even attempt to look for most of these transitions apart from like the, the very obvious ones. Like you, you probably didn't throw the camera into the river, so that's probably not probably not a, not a legit transition there. But yeah, I did find myself at the start of it feeling a little unsettled for a different reason, though, which is that strangely um, it evoked the nature of like a Call of Duty game. It felt like I was watching a, a very long cutscene in a video game. I kept expecting <laughs> it to, to come up with a prompt telling me to press X to breach or something like that. But <laughs> because of the way it's shot with the same kind of over-the-shoulder things and uh, it follows in exactly the same way that uh, you would see in the, the kind of uh, cutscenes of video games. So uh, props to video games for um, learning so well. Um, but <laughs> but just as it's effective in immersing you in a video game, that technique works very well in this film as well, to immerse you in the, uh, the, the trouble the travels are uh, protagonists, and it works really well. Um, I, as you say, uh, the story's not much. It's uh, it's almost a, it's all about the journey rather than the, yeah, the destination. It's, but. it's almost a chase movie without being chased. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. I can't quite think what the right word would be. Yeah. <laughs> but it's got that sort of a feel to it. Yeah, yeah. But it works really well. There's lots of very effective little vignettes of showing how gross <laughs> this war is. What I liked about it, actually, is that there's a kind of continual running thread through it that it, even if they do get to this uh, the general in time, there's a possibility that maybe he's going to ignore these orders, maybe he's going to just throw his folks into the grinder because that's what you're doing in war. And it kind of manages to subvert that and then unsubvert it again uh, because basically like yeah, the, 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 don't suppose it's really spoilers but yeah the, the guy eventually listens to reason doesn't order the attack uh, for the most part uh, but it's made pretty clear that well you've saved these guys life for what a week two weeks something like that until the next <laughs> opportunity we have to try and get another get another six inches of land by throwing a couple of hundred thousand people in a meat yeah. grinder <laughs> So it's not exactly leaving you on a happy ending, even after you get the happy ending and you get this almost ridiculous story of um, 
triumph over incredible odds and as well in the grander context of the war it's not actually going to make a lot of difference like, oh oh that's almost disheartening as you come out of the cinema but um it's very much fitting for the first world war uh, very much on brand it's the whole lions led by donkeys thing as yeah. well and the yeah. fact that the whole war is basically predicated on outdated tactics cavalry tactics and stuff yeah. you know, war with automatic <laughs> weapons and trenches yes. did not match yeah. the the actual realities of it yeah yeah it's just a, a very very effective film um very powerful it's, it might not be a film i actually go back and watch maybe at all um it's it's very effective and i liked it but it's, again it's not a particularly easy watch it stirs up a lot of things that I'm perhaps not going to want to see on a, a casual level all that often. But yeah, it is a, a very a terrific piece of filmmaking. deserves all the plaudits that it gets. Uh, Cinematography-wise, you've mentioned all the major bits that I uh, thought, uh, thought of. There was, there was one point, um, I think it's just when he's running through the uh, ruins of the city at night and it starts to be lit up by flares. And I kind of I kind of went, oh, come on, you're just showing off at this point. That's, <laughs> that's too good. Just stop, yeah. stop it. I've noticed... Um a few of these Roger Dickinson, I haven't watched so many in close proximity now, that he does quite like his like night shots lit with fire or like little light um, yeah. actually if, as much as I like the 1970s I think I may actually just prefer the end of Skyfall right, yeah. with uh, with Kincaid and M going out across the moor with the burning building lighting them and accelerating them and stuff but yeah. it's a close one thing this, the, that scene in 1970 is incredible it's like there's fires and there's the flares and he's running and it's like that's yeah, yeah. you're right Scott he's showing off it's like yes 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 we know you're brilliant <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, the, the technical achievement in, in planning and executing all this, uh, both from Deacons and Mendes, is quite remarkable. Yes, it's, it is a, a remarkable piece of logistics, almost as much as it is of, of filmmaking. Uh, but yes, it's, it's it certainly paid off. Um, yeah, to, to great effect. Um, yeah. and yeah, it's uh, spirited performances from the, the leads, and also a lot of pretty good supporting roles from various people popping up at, uh, at, as they meet on their, their way, uh, all of which kind of learned a, a little bit of a character to it as well. So, yes, all very good stuff. Yeah, the the logistics is the thing too. I mean, like, while that scene in Goodfellas is particularly impressive because, if I mentioned the performance, if that goes wrong, if somebody misses their mark or hmm. something goes wrong, you've got to shoot that entire thing again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in 1990, particularly expensive because it's on film. Yeah. But here, with like, so many long takes, you like multiply that by, what, 30 or something? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, if anybody gets anything wrong in a take, they have to do the entire thing again. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's impressive. And uh, again, this is not really the point. It's like, the point is, like, is the final result worthwhile? Which it clearly is. But I was uh, impressed by that kind of imagination, the ability to plan it and stuff, and then because there's like digital extensions but it's all real sets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and some like the work that must have got into a lot of that too. Yeah, absolutely. And then to yeah. actually be able to produce these shots too and the clever things they had to work out with cameras and the mounting of them and things, it's it's incredible stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and just to touch on a, another point you made so that I really did like that little nod of, of Mark Strong's character with that warning about the the commander. Yeah, like, yeah, that, I like that. That's yeah, because um, it's, it's 
Unfortunately, I can't remember the actual phrase, but basically there's kind of like a prejudice to action over inaction. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's like, he's saying, make sure there's, or like just make sure there's witnesses and stuff, because otherwise, yeah, yeah <laughs> might just be compelled to do that anyway. Like, they seem to be doing something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A uh, couple of like fairly respected, fairly big name actors in there too, that in there for moments, really. Yeah, yeah. Which is nice to see like, people that kind of really appreciate the the quality of the person they're working with. I think and will happily turn up for the small, possibly even relatively thankless role. Yeah. If there's one minor issue, it is I wasn't one hundred percent sold on George Mackay's uh, performance because I thought his delivery seemed a little stilted, like he was speaking very carefully and like enunciating very clearly that didn't strike me as quite right for a private in the in the army in World War One. Um that might just be a choice thing. Yeah. Um, it didn't take me out of it, just I was aware of it. Yeah. Um, like he, he was talking a bit more like an officer rather than a uh, enlisted. Yes. Uh, yeah. Like quite kinda and I've seen him in other things and he doesn't speak like that. So it's not his normal method of speaking, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I think it's it was a choice and it's a very, very clear diction. Yeah. That, I mean, there may well be privacy spoke that, I just, it, it kind of stood at odds with his co-star. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's very different to how yeah, armies are normally portrayed for, the, for this kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, um, normally expect a more broad working class uh, accents at, at, the, uh, at that level of... Yeah. And particularly at that time yeah. as well. Yeah. So, yeah, we are at the level of nitpicking. You know, I just wanted to mention because it, it, it stuck out a little to me. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not a massive amount of dialogue in the film, so it's it's fairly inconsequential. I just thought that was odd because it seemed like it was a choice. Yeah. Uh, and I was just a bit surprised by that. It didn't seem to fit in, but yeah, see, very minor. Yeah. Um, and it's generally pretty watchful for the rest of it. So, oh, yes. it's all good. Yes. Right then, having. Done that. We're going to go back in time a bit to one of Roger Deakins' earliest films uh, and proof that a great cinematographer isn't just there to make things look beautiful, it's there to provide the necessary setting. And that necessary may be grim. Yes. Grim in 10 foot high capital letters. <laughs> grim. Yes. With 1984. Yes. Uh, continuing the theme of films titled with years, uh, in which we must beware, The Savage Roar of George Orwell's 1984. This represents one of those fleetingly rare cases where I've actually read the source material, although I suspect, even if you haven't, you're probably still going to be fairly familiar with the general gist of it. What with that whole George Orwell being so present about aspects of human nature and technology that his surname <laughs> became an adjective thing. Uh, let's see if Michael Radford's film can step out of the shadow cast by the source material. Uh, the political map projection of 1984's world is rather less colourful than ours, with a series of ongoing conflicts leaving th- only three supernations locked into a permanent war. In a bombed-out part of what was London, now simply a sector of Airstrip 1, the eastern edge of Oceania, which is predominantly the Americas, John Hurt's Winston Smith goes about a necessarily austere life as a mid-level party apparatchik, a tool of the totalitarian rulers, altering historical records to fit with approved party lines and removing or unpersoning anyone no longer deemed suitable. 
Now, as with the book, there is a narrative, largely driven by Wilson's illicit relationship with a fellow party member, Susanna Hamilton's Julia, where they commit the heinous crimes of love and free thought from a base in the less tightly controlled proletariat areas, uh, who are somewhat vaguely characterised as a mass of completely uninformed people kept entirely entertained by trivialities, presumably like some sort of post-apocalyptic reality TV show or something. Eventually, this relationship is uncovered by the Thought Police, and they are taken away for a spot of light, re-education slash mind-breaking torture at the behest of party higher-up Richard Burton's O'Brien. It is, however, a narrative that raises far more questions than it answers, and I'm not often one to harp on about plot holes, but not much about the Julia and O'Brien's instigating actions make a great deal of sense, aside from them being useful to drive the plot along. It's a love based on narrative imperative, perhaps, but I suppose Mm. the point is not so critical, given that the impossibility of expecting normal human reactions from the sort of deeply inhuman system the characters find themselves in is sort of the overarching point of the work. Now, there's a slew of dystopian tropes that were either born from or greatly popularised by 1984. Pervasive, intrusive surveillance, controlling the past to control the present, how controlling language can control expression, double-think, thought crimes, two-minute hate, and while I'd argue it's the concepts and the language that's the reason the novel is endured, Deakins made a pretty good fist of the imagery of it too. I mean, when what's widely regarded as one of the best adverts ever made is directly inspired by this, (laughs) it, it surely has some place in the wider culture. The ominous form of the ever-watching Big Brother, the contrast between the ruins of Airship One and the seemingly miraculously surviving green land that becomes a symbol of hope and freedom for Winston or standouts, alongside the general fallout-ish post-apocalyptia. However, at heart, 1984 is more about the words than the visuals, and any film translation will struggle to capture that focus. I think Michael Radford and crew have done as well as can be expected on that front. The performances from Hart, Hamilton and Burton are... Well, weird. <laughs> They're not behaving and acting as normal human beings, which can come across as stilted, but the point is that the society isn't letting them be normal human beings. Uh, likewise, when O'Brien's torturing Winston with all the checked-out air of a distracted bureaucrat, well, again, it's all intentional, I assume, but it does feel, well, weird. So then, I suppose 1984 gets a mild recommendation, either for the interested or for those that don't want to read the book, but it's not essential viewing, and, well, the book knocks this into a cocked hat. If nothing else, it's good to see Rab C. Nesbitt on the big screen. That was one of my first points I was going to make, Scott. (laughs) I I saw the titles come say, Gregor Fisher? Yes. Really? (laughs) That was weird to cast. Yeah, I did not get on with this film, unfortunately. I haven't read the book. I suppose I'm not alone mm-hmm. in this world of having bought it and then never actually got around to reading it. Um, <laughs> though, more just because I've had so many other books to read, I just haven't gotten around to this one yet. And from cultural osmosis, I feel I've like, yeah. taken into the gist of it, yeah. which is why <laughs> I could actually follow this film. Because I think if I hadn't done, I would have been absolutely at sea because stuff just happens. Yeah. And it's like it kind of just kind of jumps along. It's like, almost like dream logic. And it's like, Okay, he's in this relationship with her now. Why? Why not? Okay. Because she dropped a note that said she loved him. Well, yes. is it that right easy? after he right. said, I hate her. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, the, the relationship just sort of happens. Mm. Um, and, it, so, and then he's, he's, ra- he's pretty much randomly framed for reading a book by the person that catches him reading the book because he gave it to them so why is that a, what's the point of that it, there's there's lots of, as I say there's lots of questions that it doesn't quite answer it's uh, it's really aiming more for the overall world to think of it rather than the actual story itself um, yeah and as much as I, I 
maybe I've read the book, I'd feel a bit more, but I didn't quite get from this film anyway, quite how the whole unperson rewriting of history worked. I mean, the film begins with that thing about whoever controls the present controls the past, mm-hmm. etc. Um, but they're kind of redoing newspapers and stuff. And like, yeah, but how does anybody ever find that stuff out? How how does that affect the present when like most of the stuff is inconsequential stuff nobody's ever going to look at? Like, it's not. I, I didn't quite understand the point of like. Yeah, it, like a small article in an old newspaper is going to make any difference. Yeah, it, a lot of it seems to go about um, trying to explain how you would control people's reactions to news such as, I mean, it's a, it's a relatively trivial point that they bring up in it, but when they're talking about the, the changing the chocolate reaction, uh, the, the level of chocolate rations that's going to be there, so rather than being... I can't remember exactly what the numbers were, but rather than being increased to a certain level, it's like being increased to... What might actually have been a reduction, but because you can go back and change the records previously to, to know that it's uh, that it was at a lower level, even though it wasn't, it can seem like you know these kind of things. Yeah. When, and, and if you've managed to train society enough that when they go back and read that, they go, "Well, that must obviously be true because it's, it is written there, and that's how the party wants me to think," um, even though I may know that it's not because of the whole double think thing. Then then you can kind of do it. But it's, yeah, it, it, it's one of these things that's. Yeah, it, it is better explained in the book than the film, but um, I suppose I suppose it would need to be because books use more words. What with them being books, and <laughs> it's easier to do that kind of thing than a, than in a visual medium. Yeah, I really that's one of the bits that really kind of I didn't understand how that was supposed to have worked because you see, Winston, he's, he sees the thing. It says something like chocolate ration to be reduced to thirty five grams. Hmm. Um, and then he, he changed it, yeah, it's like increased to 25. Yeah. And then you see Gregor Fisher says to him the next morning, have you heard the rumour they're increasing the chocolate ration? I'm like, yeah. well, but, but how how is this a rumour? Like, again, it's happened in the past, nobody's going to have looked it up. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't make any sense, that's not how people talk. Um, and again, like you're saying, Scott, but like, they're not really allowed to act like normal people, but it doesn't... But, like, there are bits that are stronger later, like, basically... Because his character, Parsons, Greg Fisher's character, is so bought into the system where they tell him he's a thought criminal without him knowing it, he believes it. Yeah. <laughs> but that thing with the chocolate doesn't make any sense because that, that would still be in the... Oh, no. Anyway, right. <laughs> no, what bothers me more is that the world doesn't really make a great deal of sense. Not in terms of the, the fascist dictatorship and stuff, but more in the fact that there's not just one... But two clearly very high-ranking people trying to entrap Winston Smith, this absolute nobody, for reasons. Yes. Because there's, there's you've got Richard Burton, who's clearly a really high-ranking member. Yeah. Right? Um, who seems to be taking a personal interest in Winston Smith, who's clearly an absolute nobody. Yeah. Um, and also Cyril Cusack, who's apparently been working undercover for like a year, maybe more. Yeah. To entrap him. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Why would... You can't spend this much resource on one person. It it doesn't make any sense. And so that kind of stopped me getting to the film right from the beginning. It does, however, look incredibly grim. So it's got that oh, yes. going for it. <laughs> it's not one I'd recommend, though, because you need to know something about the book to understand what's going on. But I think if you really want to do it, you're probably just better off reading the book, which uh, this has kind of pushed me to actually finally get around to doing. Yeah. But I think the film 
just doesn't work on its own without some knowledge of the book. And it's, that's no. not really what films are supposed to do. I don't mind 1984, but I, can, I can't recommend it very highly to anyone. Certainly to anyone that's not read the book. It's exactly the same bucket as June falls into for me, where I I like that it's they've made a film out of it, but it's a film that is completely impenetrable if you've not read the, the source <laughs> material. And 1984 is maybe not quite so bad in that regard, but yeah, it, it, it does need to lean on a lot of things that you're carrying over from your knowledge of the book rather than something that it can explain itself within its own world. I can't think how you would be able to do it better than they've done here. I just think it's, it's not one of these, you know, nothing's unfilmable, but some things just don't lend themselves so well to an adaptation. So th- this can deal with the kind of high-level aspects of it and the visuals of it, but it can't explain so well the uh, the rationale of it. Um, but because the, the book is so concerned with the use of language and how language um, shapes thought, it's harder to turn that into dialogue um, that's, yeah. that has the same... Um, impact and I think they've done the best they can but I, I just uh, yeah, it, it needs too much uh, assumed knowledge from the, the book to really be enjoyable so yeah, that's the that's the first port of call, read the book and unfortunately if you have read the book there's probably not a great deal of point watching the film apart from the, interest, the general interest Yeah, that, that's the impression yeah. I get too and like I said, exactly I, I can grok quite a lot of it simply because of the cultural osmosis of have of 1984's effect on popular culture. Yeah, and uh, so much of the language has come into well, the language. Yeah, must have been a better way to put that. <laughs> the reason I'm not a writer like Orwell was. Uh, it's the world. And it's like separate from the book. The, the world just doesn't work, and the the things that happen, so well, they could have happened without any obvious imperative, either in terms of emotion or narrative drivers, narrative necessity. Yeah, and that seems to be the only thing that's really compelling anything to happen. Yeah, it's a candle because we're focusing on Deacons and Roger Deacons in this episode. It does look horrible. <laughs> yes, it's, it's dreadful. really, really. Really unpleasant looking in this world, which is exactly what it's meant to be. Yeah. Uh, there is a strange coda to the film that it mentions like this film was shot in and around London in 1984, the exact time and setting envisioned by the author. I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't look yeah. even vaguely recognisable as London. Yeah. And London doesn't look like that. That doesn't matter. That was an irrelevant thing to put in there. Yes. Yeah. It, it, that. It's not a statement that stands a lot of scrutiny, does it? This is set in the one part of London where they'd knocked over a building that we could film around, which looks like what Orwood written. It's not actually what London looks like in 1984, so... Yes, it's not representative (laughs) at all, so it's meaningless. Um, (laughs) Yes, uh, I think... I guess Michael Radford thought there was some sort of import in that, and like, no. No, that's just coincidence. That's... Yes. (laughs) Shall we crash onwards then to Barton Fink? Oh, you don't have a good segue there, Scott. Mm. I am disappointed. <laughs> now, here's a slightly inconvenient thing for a film podcast, most particularly an episode focusing on cinematography. I don't actually need to watch Barton Fink. <laughs> oh, not in a The Big Lebowski-like way, in that I really don't need to watch it. The entire film was burned into the inside of my mind. <laughs> I, but I mean, that I could just close my eyes and listen to Joel Nathan Cohen's exceptional dialogue. Not that Barton Fink is itself exceptional in that regard. That's kind of table stakes for the brothers from Minnesota. 
and listening to just the dialogue would indeed be particularly appropriate for this tale of a young New York playwright played by John Turturro who moves to Hollywood for stint writing for the pictures so that he can then afford to spend as long as he wants writing about the struggles of the common man. (laughs) But to so close my eyes would of course mean I miss out on so much. From Turturro and John Goodman's wonderfully expressive faces to the distinctive visual stylings and Deacon's compositions. This film marking his first time working with the siblings. Struggling to complete work in Miller's Crossing, writer's block, it is assumed by most, though the Coens themselves deny this, attention was turned to this tale of a socialist activist playwright selling his soul to work at Capitol Pictures from Michael Lerner's Jack Lipnick. And yes, that is the same Capitol Pictures that would later appear in Hail Caesar. Hmm. Wanting somewhere to stay less Hollywood than the studio was minded to give him, Fink sets himself up in the slightly shabby, more than slightly odd, Hotel Earl and sets to work on his first job, writing a script for a wrestling B-movie. And while the Coens may have written Barton Fink in an astonishing three weeks, their protagonist isn't so productive, struggling to write word one. Unless somehow he can shoehorn fishmongers into wrestling. <laughs> After initially complaining about the very loud laughter coming from the room, Fink befriends his neighbour at the hotel, John Goodman's Charlie Meadows, a gregarious and friendly insurance salesman who represents exactly the sort of salt-of-the-earth regular Joe that he wants to write about. Meanwhile, in hopes of getting a kickstart from the proximity of another writer, Fink spends time with John Mahoney's William Faulkner-inspired W.P. Mayhew and his secretary and lover Audrey, played by Judy Davis. After a desperate late-night plea for help with an impending deadline, Audrey and Barton sleep together. And when Barton wakes up, finds he's in an entirely different genre of film altogether. (laughs) Though the film willfully eschews easy definitions of genre at all. I'm not going to go too much more into the plot in that, because I think if you don't really know much about it, that's quite a surprise, that scene. And I don't want to talk too much about that just now. But Mm. it really was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And Deakins has said that the Coen's meticulous method of filmmaking has influenced him. Here, he has provided the film with that warm slightly unreal tone that just screams 1940s and has always carefully considered compositions which in this case often have a still painting-like quality reflect the breakdown of Fink's psyche. The centrepiece of this is the Hotel Lerl itself which stands in stark relief to the light and vivid yet slightly phony environs of the studio in Lipnick's office and the sharply rendered world sophisticated New York art society in which the film begins. The Earl exudes a greenish sickliness and a feeling of stifling, clammy air that oppresses the viewer as much as the character. You'll want to loosen your collar and probably also scratch and then likely take a shower. The similarities between the weeping wallpaper paste and Charlie's pus-fueled ear are not coincidental. (laughs) The Earl is a metaphorical hell and will later become an actual inferno in another beautifully shot sequence using fire, one of Deacon's favourite tools. Together with art directors Bob Goldstein and Leslie MacDonald, he made the Earl a central character. There's good reason Barton Fink has found itself in numerous lists of defining films of the 90s, and that's because it's superb. It was even so successful at Cannes that the festival changed the rules so that no subsequent film could win so many prizes. (laughs) The acting is excellent, Turturro and Goodman in particular. In fact, Goodman's role was written specifically to take advantage of the friendly, avuncular image he naturally projects to the audience and then subvert it. And Carter Burwell's eerie score is unsettling. And 
As you may have um, guessed from the way I spoke at the start, the dialogue is simply amazing. And what is Barton Fink in the end? A comedy? A drama? A noir thriller? A dark comedy? A dramedy? Yes. <laughs> uh, and also something you should watch, because it is really good. Yeah. Advice, I should have taken Tart a long time ago. This is actually the first time I've watched Barton Fink. I've tried to watch Barton Fink a number of times, and for whatever reason, it's not like I've ever not enjoyed what I'd seen of it so far, but I've either fallen asleep or something else has intervened or interjected, and never managed to make it all the way through after about at least three attempts. But yes, this is the first time I actually made it all the way through to the end, and it's uh, it's good. I liked it. So yes, I should have done that a long time ago. Uh, well done, you. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, a hell of a performance from John Turturro. Uh, I love how obnoxious he is at the start, especially with all the interactions with uh, John Goodman um, in the first couple of times they meet. He's just he, he's just so slappable. <laughs> Stop doing that. But um, yes, yeah, it definitely becomes more sympathetic as, uh, as as various horrors are inflicted upon him towards the end of the film. And it takes you on a wild ride. Um, if if that shot I mentioned in 1917 was Deacon showing off, then this whole film is just the Coen brothers showing off. It's like, how, how do you write this in, what, two, three weeks, they were saying? Three weeks, apparently it was, yeah. It's nuts. While they were stuck in another film. Yeah. <laughs> no, we just we just cranked this one out to amuse ourselves. And it's, it's one of their best films. It's disgusting. Want everything. <laughs> it's just wrong. It's not right at all. It's really, really good. Yes, those boys have just too much talent. Uh, yeah, it's it is up there with the rest, and uh, yeah, there, there's so many great things, largely capped off by those the whole bunch of performances and some. Yeah, it's just the dialogue's impeccable, um, as as you tend to get from Coen Brothers, but it's particularly great here and uh, very very funny, very entertaining, and certainly keeps you guessing as to how it's actually going to play out in the end. If you've, it's a uh, it's not predictable from the start. Uh, if you, if you describe the first the, the first couple of scenes and the last few scenes, I, it would be very difficult to draw a roadmap from it gets from there to to the end. But uh, yes, they've they pulled off, and it, it, it certainly is very easy to be carried along by it and uh, yeah. go along for this crazy ride. <laughs> yeah, Barton definitely doesn't end up in the same film he started off in. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think for me, apart from the dialogue, I hadn't seen Barton Fink in a while, so I actually forgotten most of it. I, I remember I liked it. Mm-hmm. But the only portions I could really clearly remember were the portions of the John Mahoney. Right. Um, why that is, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> possibly because at that point, it's like, oh, it's Fraser's dad. And it had been the only thing I'd ever seen him in. It kind of stuck out yeah. because it was the first time I'd seen him in something else. But yeah, I know from other Coen Brothers works, including one that we're going to talk about shortly, that John Goodman's is really good. He's, some of his best stuff's been with the, the Coen brothers. But I think it's not quite the revelation, but the real standout for me in this was John Turturro. Yeah. Um, because in recent years, he's like, amazing years is Jesus Quintana in The Big Lebowski. It's a, it's a ridiculous character. Yeah. Unintentionally so, okay. But then you've got kind of playing daft characters in the Transformer films yeah um, things whereas because of a couple of episodes we've done in the last couple of years actually Scott I've seen him in earlier stuff that I'd either not seen in a while I'd never seen before mm-hmm. like watch um, 
like how good he is in a couple of Spike Lee films, like Do the Right Thing in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also in Jungle Fever. Yeah. And I really like him in Jungle Fever. Um, and it's a small role, but a fairly good role in To Live and Die in LA. Yeah. And go back and like, I've seen him do, or it's hard to call Barton Fink straight, but compared to, for instance, the Jesus Quintana, yeah, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a much more straight role. I say, like, it's really good. Yeah. He's such an expressive face, and I think he's become known for slight, of late, um, for slightly goofy, goofier, yeah. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> I said exactly the same yeah. what I was thinking, goofier roles. Uh, and I'm watching this and I can, he should be the lead more. He's great. Yeah. Uh, it's a real disappointment that he's not. But uh, yeah, it's it's such a good film. And in a career of films that I just, I love so many of, this is actually one of the Coen Brothers' best. And I, I kind of scold myself now <laughs> that I'd managed to forget that or maybe at the time didn't quite appreciate it yeah and I've, I've waited so long to revisit this night oh wow yes this was brilliant i'll be watching this again yes <laughs> but um yeah to keep in with the tone or the topic of this episode though like, the real standout is, is, is the the hotel earl it's a weird and creepy place yeah it's kind of like a an even weirder version of something like the Overlook Hotel or exactly something. Exactly what I was thinking, yeah. It's, the, uh, like it's the just missing stage. an elevator full of blood, but yeah, so yeah. that's uh, watch the screen. <laughs> same, of, same vibe, yeah. Yeah. The yellowish-green tones, the fact that there doesn't appear to be anybody in it apart from Steve Buscemi's Chet and then John Turturro and John Goodman. Yeah. Um, the seemingly endless corridors of shoes, despite the fact you never see anybody else. <laughs> yeah. Ghost shoes. Um, <laughs> And the whole thing has just been made such a character and it just it really does feel so kinda of uncomfortable in those scenes. Yeah. And you can feel the heat. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's another thing of what like we're with working together with the director, Roger Deacons has managed to like create an atmosphere and a really consistent, solid atmosphere that's basically there's not like a scene in any of his film that he hasn't thought about. There's never anything slapdash with anything he does. Yeah. There's never like, oh, this scene isn't this important, isn't it going to be care? That it's, I mean, there's not every scene can be an interesting, like, there's a, we'll come to it later, of course, but there's a scene in Sicario where it's basically, it's like the most boring building you've ever seen. It's an apartment building, it's basically a concrete cube, but we'll try and make it look as good as it possibly can. Yeah. Um, like, it's like, Everything's just like sets like there's there's balance in every composition. It's never just a case of oh well this scene doesn't matter so much we'll just plonk the camera down. Yeah, um, I think that's it's consistency that is one of the things that I found that really marked him out. Yeah, yeah, right from the off um, there doesn't seem to be any. He's just been very good at this from the very start. Um, hopefully, getting better and uh, more ambitious as time goes on. But yes, yes, been yes. really good for a very long time. Quite impressive. There is a reason he's considered one of the best, most influential cinematographers <laughs> ever. Yeah. It's because he's awfully good. Um, yeah. I apologise now if I end up repeating myself, listeners, but um, I'm trying to find the right words to explain why he's so good. Um, and I'm struggling a bit. I don't want to just repeat myself saying, he's very good. <laughs> uh, as I said, as I mentioned at the start, not quite sure I've got quite little vocabulary to do it justice. Yeah. Um, other than, ooh, pretty. <laughs> It's not really um, the loquacious way I want to speak about it. <laughs> yes, what's best is when he's done work with 
a director and it's, or directors and it's a really good collaboration and that together you can see that they've produced something special yeah uh, and this is very much one of those films although really most of them are yeah well can you say the same about Gundam hmm that's what I'll say to that Scott hmm. hmm yes I think that most people not unreasonably would associate Martin Scorsese with crime and gangster film Grang- grangster <laughs> Yes, Martin Scorsese's famous gangster films, um, <laughs> which is like grungy gangster. Yeah. It's a new genre he's pioneering. It's kind of gangster films, but he has had an extremely varied career, including musicals, steampunky odes to cinema pioneers, stories of 17th-century Christian priests in feudal Japan, and even a documentary on Bob Dylan. Even in, within that varied body of work, though. One of the somewhat more surprising entries into his canon must be 1997's Kundun, a tale of the life of the 14th Dalai Lama, Tenzin Gyatso, from his rebirth until the time he was forced into exile in India, and based on Gyatso's own writing. The first half of the film concerns the finding of the Dalai Lama as a child, his upbringing in the monastery, and his assumption of the duties of spiritual and political leader of Tibet, before he's ready while in the background constantly looms the threat, and from our perspective knowledge, that China is getting ready to steal his country. The second portion deals with the Lama's role as a leader in a nation occupied by the Chinese army, and his dealings with Chairman Mao, why isn't this guy vilified like Hitler is? I've never understood this, he was the spickle on, he was responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of people, I really don't get it, but also <laughs> I may be straying from the point, Zedong, <laughs> for which he was ill-equipped by experience. As China tightens its grip on Tibet and becomes more violent, Gyatso flees the country for the not unreasonable desire to not immediately be dead. Well, he's the Dalai Lama, not immediately be dead again. (laughs) And to lead his people from abroad until such time as non-violent means free his country. Kundan, I find rather hard to talk about as I don't think it's unfair to characterise it as a bunch of things that happen. (laughs) Certainly its structure is quite episodic and not particularly well tied together. A series of vignettes that feel like they've been plucked from a journal, which is almost certainly what they are. It is, however, interesting. Portions of the life and intertwined religion of a country and culture not particularly well known to English-speaking audiences. Though for that reason, it also frustrates because, well, I want to know what that thing is Mm -hmm. and why those guys are doing that thing. It's also largely cast with non-actors, and while that lends an air of authenticity to many passages, the stiltedness with which many deliver the lines can be jarring. It's probably just best to try to absorb the atmosphere and look up the details later. That experience of absorption would, fortunately, be pretty enjoyable, even with Philip Glass's score. Actually, I'm being unfair, this is a Philip Glass score which I actually like. Yeah. Amazing sense, with a couple of exceptions can live with it is generally the best I can ever hope for with his work. (laughs) And that enjoyable experience, unsurprisingly, is due in large part to Roger Deakins. Are we seeing a theme here, people? (laughs) I've not seen this since it was first released in home video. My usual note here that this is, despite, of course, owning it for years in the interim. And I'd forgotten quite how beautiful it is. Filmed in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco as a very convincing stand-in for Tibet... It's the sort of landscape you'd honestly have to work very hard to not make look gorgeous, 
or at least striking, just by setting the camera down and taking off the lens cap. But Deacons elevates it to something greater, a place that seems at the same time tranquil and impossibly harsh, beautiful and cruel, a setting where it is not difficult to wonder at the flourishing of spirituality. There's an otherworldliness to it, an appropriately meditative, dreamlike quality, and Deakins himself has described the film as being like a tone poem more than a narrative, and I can really see where he's coming from. It's definitely not a film that's going to satisfy many, perhaps not even most, but I would suggest it's interesting enough if you have if you haven't seen it. And well, you probably haven't. And there's a reason for that. Disney. Disney bought the distribution rights, then pretty much torpedoed it instantly because of China. <laughs> with then-CEO and total asshat Michael Eisner saying was a stupid mistake and that the film was an insult to her friends, but other than journalists, few people in the world ever saw it. Well, I'm glad, and aren't you, that that sort of behaviour's behind them. <laughs> oh, oh, did you hear the Disney block distribution of an episode of Last Week Night with John Oliver in India because it was critical of the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi? That was three days ago. Disney are... A bunch of Russian fronts, to use some um, Robert Rankin Nazi rhyming slang. <laughs> yeah, Disney going to Disney. First time I've seen Kundun, and it's fine. Uh, <laughs> let's say it is a bunch of stuff that happened. It's, it's, it, it, because it's a bunch of stuff that I'm not particularly familiar with, um, that was interesting. I, I didn't really know anything about... Uh, obviously, I've got a bit better of a grasp of the kind of post-exile... Dalai Lama stuff but yeah. all the bits before that I didn't really know I, I wasn't even sure he was actually in occupied uh, Tibet at any point but yes uh, this, this kind of does a, a very good job of uh, explaining at least I guess the highlights of that um, it's by no means a, a warts and all telling of the years of occupation and uh, and all that but it's it, it does uh, makes a, a good fist of getting that across uh, without really going into an awful lot of detail, uh, but that's fine. I don't think it needs to. Or any. Yeah, um, as you say, it's like journal entries in, in, in a way. To, to be honest, don't have an awful lot to add from what you're saying there. It does look lovely. Um, there's some incredible compositions in there, like shots of the that landscape with like a the. Uh, monasteries uh, up on the third as well, just the, as they're all kind of getting up to it and climbing up the stairs. It's all, all lots of just fast forward to any random point in this, and you'll be greeted with something that looks lovely. Um, it is as much a triumph of costume design as it is cinematography. Um, all the colours and, and just the, the, the riot of uh, how that looks and just the day to day life uh, looks absolutely spectacular. And yes, visually, it's an absolutely fascinating film. Content wise, it's Perhaps less fascinating. Um, it's yeah. it's sort of interesting, but more on a kind of almost intellectual level rather than feeling awfully invested in anything that's happening, um, which is a a terrible thing to say given given what's going on. To it. But um, I think that's perhaps where not having professional actors kind of hurts it a little bit in as much as it's harder to get invested with with some of them when you know, the performances are perhaps not. They're not quite naturalistic enough, even though it's sort of someone without training. But if you take an actor who doesn't have any training in acting and just lets them do it, it's 
that's not the same as being natural at it. You know, you can't just have people say, just just pretend to do your normal stuff and have them actually do their normal stuff because the act of observing that will change how they do their stuff. And uh, perhaps that's uh, perhaps that's why it doesn't quite work on, on that level. But uh. It can work, that, Scott, the whole non-actor thing. And it's happened from time to time. One that particularly comes to my mind quite easily is City of God. Yeah. Set in the, the favelas of Rio. I think perhaps because that was those kids basically doing their life because they were from that area. Yeah. Um, this is a bit different, I think. And yes, yeah, none of these people actually are the Dalai Lama. So <laughs> close, but yeah. yeah. And I wonder if they're sometimes they're picked more for being able to speak. It's Tibetan a language. I, I, I'm afraid I don't actually know now. I think about it. Whatever their native languages, as well as English, um, yeah. so that maybe restricts the pool as well. There's not a lot of what I'm guessing is Tibetan in it, um, but there's some, so that's maybe why too. And the person, the actor playing, well, actor, the playing the grown-up Dalai Lama, mm-hmm. is the actual grand nephew of the real Dalai Lama, and I kind of feel he was um, cast maybe either for some sort of historical veracity or more politely because he looks a bit like yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it suffers a bit from that so it's a bit stilted some people are better than others uh, the guy playing and maybe some of these are actually professional actors I've not looked 100% into exactly where everybody had come from the woman playing his mother is reasonably okay and the one of his two prime ministers in particular who has quite a lot of dialogue which is just as well is pretty good mm-hmm. um the rest of the people it's a fairly mixed bag what I found was while I was watching this too it's like it's interesting I don't know much about this country or this culture it's really interesting to see and what I kept thinking was I'd kind of like to see a documentary of this yeah rather than a slightly disjointed drama yeah it's not quite satisfying in drama terms or in teaching me terms yeah but at least I'm like it's bloody lovely while it's not teaching me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I don't regret watching it, but um, I'd struggle to say it's essential uh, Scorsese uh, viewing. Uh, but it's definitely worth I, putting on there. For me, it's certainly it's um, I would put it higher up any potential viewing order than 1984. True, I find yeah. it a, a more compelling film than that, and a more satisfying film. Um, also, it looks nice, but again, with 1984, that's not the point. It's meant to look hideous. It's just vaguely frustrating. Mm-hmm. That's my, my general takeaway from that. It's like, it doesn't quite satisfy me, visuals aside, in almost any way. And I feel like with a few changes, it could. Yeah. What that has reminded me too of is that there isn't any such thing as a Martin Scorsese film. Mm. There is no particular style of trait that really marks it as because he just makes a number of good and interesting films yeah. that are all very different um, and it just does me think I kind of wish he'd worked with Roger Deakins more yeah yeah that could have been led to some very interesting um, collaborations yeah yeah uh, so from Kundan we're going to move on to another Coen Brothers film and as usual, I can't think of any linking device <laughs> off the cuff. So, oh brother, where are Scott? 
which which is a film perfectly suited for me, as I am indeed a man of constant sorrow. Like all British people, we just cannot stop apologising. And fair enough, Britain has a lot of things to apologise for, but normally what British people apologise for is when someone bumps into us, we will apologise for having been bumped into. Uh, so uh, this 100% literal adaptation of Homer's Odyssey sees <laughs> uh, George Clooney, John Turturro and Tim Blake Nelson make a break for freedom from a chain gang as Clooney's loquacious Ulysses Everett McGill promises to share a portion of some buried ill-gotten treasure with Pete and Delmar if they help him get to that location before it is flooded by a soon-to-be-commissioned dam. To be honest, if you try and recap succinctly the plot of Oh Brother, you will just sound like a madman in the throes of a fever dream, so best just to call it a road trip, in which scarcely believable events happen to our leads that will see them accidentally become phenomenally successful recording artists, put them into a tight spot, test their hair care regimen, test the bonds of their family and friendships, and have John Goodman smack them in the face with a tree branch. Now, I loved Oh Brother back in release, I don't think I've actually watched it in the interim. In the main, that's because that first run through did a pretty bang-up job of imprinting itself on me, <laughs> to the point that I'll often think back to the outright weirdness of having that weird in a tight spot phrase as a running joke for like, what, two <laughs> minutes, and then dropping it, or indeed buying a t-shirt featuring McGill's preferred pomade solution. Uh, Are you a dapper Dan man, Scott? Of course, I'm not a monster. You don't want fault, <laughs> damn it. Uh, I'm gratified to find myself just as entertained this time round, with excellent performances all round, and sharp, tightly honed dialogue that makes it exceptionally easy to pass time with these characters as they are swept along on their journey. Sure, it doesn't make a great deal of sense, but when it's this much fun, I'm not that bothered. I suppose the strongest inspiration that it takes from Odyssey is, well, the form. Uh, This is a myth of the American South in the Depression, not a documentary, so perhaps it could be said to capture an emotional, if not a literal, truth. I'll leave that to the comparative historians. I'm just a boy speaking on a podcast recommending that you watch this in the unlikely event that you have not yet done so. As for your boy Dreekins, he's really dropped the ball on this one. Looks terrible. <laughs> Hang on, wait, no, the opposite of that. I regret the error. Um, yes, it's never less than pretty, and all of the presumably highly graded, uh, graded sun-dappled golden hours and dreamy sequences of moments of, let's say, heightened reality uh, go by, and it's a delight to watch, even with the audio off. Although, obviously, you shouldn't do that because of the excellence of the dialogue and the superb soundtrack. So, yes, it's just very, very good. Yeah, watch it. I, I, I genuinely love this film. Mm-hmm. Um, I have watched it multiple times since, um, since seeing it in the cinema, uh, almost certainly with you and Craig. Mm-hmm. And I, I also actually didn't need to do that again because that it just almost immediately went straight into the same part of my head where the big Lebowski lives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like permanent storage. And there's so much of that film from the very beginning, I remembered and like, like the. I don't want fault, damn it, I'm a dapper Dan man and my hair, yeah. we're in a tight spot and just straight in there. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, George, not the livestock. <laughs> and I hate cows. I, I could go... Also, possibly the best um, off-camera cow sound ever used in cinema at the end with George Nelson. Yeah. Um, and somebody just screams, cow killer. <laughs> <laughs> I knew this film was for me the very first time I watched it when it got to just a, like two or three minutes into the film when the three um, main characters appear in the middle of a cornfield in their prison duds jump onto the moving train and uh, George Clooney stands up and goes any of you boy smiddies oh if not smiddies per se are you otherwise skilled in the metallurgical arts and I thought right okay I like this film already this is amazing 
it's like their dialogue, the, the composer's dialogue, it's just so incredible. And I think what perhaps people don't realise too is how precise they are. Yeah. The, the big Lebowski is an amazing film and great performances, but every um and every ah, even, yeah. is scripted. It's crazy. Um, although they, they very often write with a, an actor in mind as well, which helps. But And this is just such a, a great film. The, the soundtrack's amazing. It looks incredible. And I think this is probably the film where I first really thought about the cinematography of anything. Yeah. yeah. In terms of, like, oh, who is this person? I'll look them up. Because um, there's that 2000, so really starting to get into cinema and, and to think about it in a more critical way rather than just, this is a good film. Yeah. And this is almost certainly the film where I first really thought about it and looked up and came across the name Roger Deakins. It's got a kind of washed out bleached look, mm-hmm. which fits the time and place. It's just such an entertaining film. Yes. I, I, I don't know what to say other than just rambling on, like, I really like it, but I really like it. Yeah. It is another of those films, you could just listen to it. The dialogue and the music is so good. But you'd, of course, be missing out on some of the delights and some that are to do with the performances that the Coen brothers get out of their actors too. Something I've noticed more recently I've come back to watch Coen brothers' films is just simply the facial expressions. Yeah. Um, and the way they just focus on them. There's, in this film, there's a particular scene where Papi O'Daniel is talking to his idiot son and his <laughs> idiot advisors and they're talking about how they're going to get um, their behinds paddled um, and Charles Durning is just sort of gapes them open mouth and it just for ages it just stays in his face it's a wide shot but um, not a medium shot but he's just his cigar is slowly dropping out of the side of his mouth and he's gaping these people like, oh, why do we employ these idiots and the film and the Coen Brothers films in general are full of little moments like that that are just they're just absolute delights and it's why you could just go back and watch Coen Brothers films over and over and over as long as it's not the lady killers yes. <laughs> yeah. which is appalling I've definitely thrown myself off track with that <laughs> watch this was that where it was probably I probably said that eight times already as is my usual thing that I, every time I start a re- podcast I, I'm not going to do my usual thing of repeating myself all the time and every time I find that I've repeated myself all the time it's really annoying and I can't make myself stop it I'm broken inside yeah. Yeah, um, this is uh, this is the last of this the Coen Brothers uh, collaborations that we're mentioning in this one but uh, we should at least throw out uh, the man who wasn't there as a honourable mention we've covered that in a, a podcast passing but uh, yes it, it also looks amazing it also yes. looks absolutely incredible and uh, well worth a bath that you got for that one yes and and, and it, as entertaining a film as this in a number of levels it was a very different style but uh, yeah over, over the period of time if you somehow haven't seen it you absolutely should yeah also I suppose we're back on the slightly goofy John Turturro performances yeah um, he's, he's incredibly entertaining at that and John Turturro dancing in a ZZ Top style um, beard um, with his dungarees on and kind of just like I actually don't know what he's doing sort of walking in place but with these shoulders moving yeah. like you need to watch this because it's it's just so odd but brilliant yes <laughs> yes once again, we're saying it's awfully good, and I know I'm definitely repeating myself this time. Somebody shoot me, please. Well, 
let's perhaps not shoot you, but will there be some shooting involved in the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford? That almost works. That'll do. Okay. Uh, you actually get praised for me for that <laughs> one, Scott. Well done. That one actually works. Well done. Well done indeed. When we were composing the list of films that we wanted to cover in this episode, the first title, aside from 1917, that went on, and without any discussion, was New Zealand filmmaker Andrew Dominic's The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford from 2007, which at the time had a lot of buzz around its cinematography, particularly Roger Deakins' use of old wide-angle lenses, unconventionally mounted, to create vignettes evocative of antique photography. Beyond looking good, though, I think we had all remembered that the film itself was underwhelming. The title clearly gives a pretty solid idea of the story the film tells, but the assassination itself is a very minor part. It covers a few months from 1881 to 1882, in which the legendary James Gang, now consisting only of Jesse James, Brad Pitt, and his brother Frank, Sam Shepard, and a handful of latecomers, commits one final train robbery in Missouri. After this, the gang disperses and tries to keep away from the law and from an increasingly paranoid Jesse. The younger brother of one of the gang members, Sam Rockwell's Charlie, is the infamous Robert Ford, played by Casey Affleck, who as a child lapped up all the dime novels telling of the exploits of Jesse James, and who tries to ingratiate himself with the outlaw. A realisation of the truth, oh, and the fact that he killed James's cousin, will put Ford in a position where it's kill or be killed. In the aftermath, since he only killed one man instead of dozens, Ford will find himself vilified rather than lionised. It's a disappointing thing indeed to find that the film I was most looking forward to revisiting is in fact the worst. It's also the longest, a meandering tale with many dull subplots that finds little to nothing to say, and is not helped by a title that, well, makes me angry. Though the title is that of the 1983 book upon which it is based, it really rubs me the wrong way, immediately suggesting that James's death was somehow a tragedy and that his killer is a true villain. Now, I don't know how widespread this is in the rest of the world, but it's a curious thing that in two countries of the English-speaking world, the United States and Australia, there is a particular reverence for outlaws, mm. that somehow there was something romantic and appealing about these men. It is fitting indeed that Nick Cave, also one of the film's composers, pops up near the end to sing a ballad lamenting James's death, given his countryman's fascination with Ned Kelly. <laughs> Jesse James, like Kelly, was a murderous thug, as well as a probable war criminal, and I'm not going to accept a film trying to persuade me otherwise. That said, I am open to a film trying to demonstrate why people would be drawn to a character like James, but here, as in most aspects, the film fails. James is played by a miscast Brad Pitt. Too tall, too old. Conspicuously lacking, at least in this role, the sort of charisma that it seems to me James must have had. There is no charm nor swagger that would keep his fellows in thrall, nor is the, nor is the character shown to have any of the capriciousness or barely concealed menace that, for instance, Tommy has in Goodfellas. Oh, we're told that he does. Numerous times, but we're never shown it. Which brings us on to the film's greatest flaw, the narration. I've made my general distaste for narration in film clear a number of times, though by no means is it a blanket aversion. I actually really like it in another Deacon shot film, The Shawshank Redemption. 
It can be fitting at times, depending on the style and story structure, of course. But in Assassination, it is a textbook demonstration of the wrongs of tell, don't show. How much this owes to the book, I don't know. But it seems that writer-director Dominic's intention was to make this have something of the flavour of a Ken Burns documentary. With a regular voiceover explaining where James and the member of the gangs were and had been, and often what they were thinking. Towards the end, we are even told what Jesse James' looks meant. Now, Brad Pitt has a face. <laughs> I've definitely seen his face. I know it's there, so perhaps let his face do that instead of telling me what his face means? <laughs> the narration is also full of dull and irrelevant detail, while seeming to build towards the day of his death. Um, but this wasn't a momentous, meaningful day like 22nd November 1963. What isn't in the narration is also pretty lacklustre, with no insight into what makes James tick. It cries out for some of the paranoia displayed by, to mention good fellas again, Robert De Niro's Jimmy Conway post Sansa robbery. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford does have one performance I actually like, which is Casey Affleck's mumbly, slightly creepy turn as Bob Ford, even though he too is a decade too old for the role. The change from sycophantic hero worshipper to fearful betrayer works much better than any other character, but unfortunately serves to highlight how underserved the rest of a cast that includes Sam Rockwell, Sam Shepard, Zoe Deschanel and Jeremy Renner is, though I will say Garrett Dillihunt does do a pretty good shifty and terrified. This is the film I watched last for this episode, and, well, I think by that point I had come to take Deacon's brilliance for granted, <laughs> as I didn't feel quite so impressed by the photography as I felt as should be. There are, though, a few undeniably standout moments, including his incredible lighting of a nighttime train robbery, illuminated largely just by handheld lanterns and a massive light in the front of the locomotive. The landscape shots are, as you would expect, striking and expertly composed, and there are some frames within frames that call to mind the films of John Ford. But the lesson I take from this is that even the most fantastic imagery can't make up for films so lacking otherwise. We didn't want to make this an episode just about Deacons and the Coens, and we could have. Oh boy, we could have. But I just want to mention that No Country for Old Men came out this same year, and we could have watched that instead. <laughs> Quel dommage. Yeah, I'm surprised to find that I enjoyed this more than you, because I really didn't enjoy it very much myself. But um, yeah, I don't. I didn't like this at the time, and I don't like this now. The way it looks is interesting. Um, as you mentioned all that and the, uh, uh, the lighting tricks you've already mentioned and his use of various old lenses and such like that to get the kind of colour aberrations and fringing so it looks like old-timey photographs and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's technically impressive in most of its aspects of production and all the set design and the costume and all that stuff. It's, it's a well-put-together yep. film. I actually don't mind most of the performances as much as you do. Um, however, I just can't bring myself to care all that much about all of them. Um, for me, there's there's a five-minute stretch where it looks like it's going to become an interesting film, and I, I really want a film that was based more upon what happened after the assassination, where Jesse James kind of... They have public attitudes of that morphing him into a Robin Hood character kind of almost uh, sort of deal, and how that affected... Robert Ford's character and his yeah. ones, the, that stretch that's covered in like five minutes and mainly narrated 
that's the only aspect of this film and this whole narrative that had any kind of interest to me and it, all the characters had any interest for me in that bit there um, that and the uh, the kind of almost degeneration of his of um, Sam Rockwell's character is almost becoming Jesse James as part of that show that he's doing uh, there's interesting parts there that was the bit that I really liked but unfortunately that's five minutes out of a four and a half hour film um, yeah, and we're told all too. Yeah. they're not showing any of that you're told it that's yeah. really irritated me about this film yes yes and uh, the rest of it I'm afraid I'm just not on board with I, I don't think these outlaws are particularly interesting and none of their little relationships and interpersonal quibbles really grabbed me in any particular way and it, it, it just felt like a bit of a slog to get through um, yeah, yeah I, just, I just couldn't really bring myself to give much of a toss about any of it I can see that it should in theory uh, be an interesting relationship uh, between uh, Brad Pitt and Casey Affleck the, the, the two characters and how they kind of how, he go, how it goes from being uh, idolised to actually killing him in the end. Um, I can see how, on paper, that could be an interesting um, angle to take and to look at, but it just turns out that I didn't really care about it, which is unfortunate because yeah. it's 90% of the film. So, yeah. <laughs> such is life. Yeah, it's large where I'm as well. And I quite like Brad Pitt. I don't think he's the best actor, but I do quite like him. And I've certainly seen him in plenty of films. I've enjoyed him. So I suspect he's capable of more. Yeah. So... And the fact that everybody in this film is so flat makes you think it's an issue either with the script or with the direction. Um, and the same person is responsible for both. But yeah, there's no... Oh, oh, first of all, you need to explain why people kind of flock to Jesse James. It either has to be charisma um, or charm. Yeah. Uh, sorry, charisma, charisma, charm or fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's none of that demonstrated here. And yet, even if it had been, even if... Brad Pitt had felt like some sort of powerful character in this film. There's actually so little time spent with the actual gang yeah. that it wouldn't matter. <laughs> and even if there was more time, I guess it's really why I mentioned um, the two characters from Goodfellas. Because in that film, you see how it starts to fall apart that Robert De Niro starts distrusting and the people around them and also thinking, well, as well as they might turn me in, I want all this money for myself. <laughs> And he starts knocking people off after Lufthansa heist. Mm. And when you've got somebody like Tommy who um, is like is always just slightly dangerous, yeah, or obviously very different character, very different film. But the, the, the kind of the personality and charisma of Forrest Whitaker's Idi Amin in The Last King of Scotland, yeah. and the way you can like like that, like turn like Jesse James for this film to work needs to be like that, yeah. And he's a sort of like reasonably friendly family man yeah. for the most part, <laughs> and like so, I absolutely don't buy it when he's suddenly supposed to be wanting to murder people. Yeah. And then again, also, he what the actual real Jesse James, tremendously terrible person, but I would accept this film. He's trying to explain why people liked him, or, or like you suggesting the focus be on how he became so mythologised afterwards, although clearly with the fact that all those dime novels yeah, existed. Yeah, of course. It was yeah. fairly well mythologised before mm. that. So there's, like, so many things that could be interesting, and this film does none of them. Yeah. Uh, although I think more than anything, I was getting really irritated by the narration by the end because it was just... Half of it was not interesting or important, 
and the other half was like tell me stuff that the film ought to be doing through its acting and its um, direction. Yeah, and it's um, so I find this like this considerably less than I remember liking it before. <laughs> and I've I've not seen the only other film that um, Andrew Dominic's done uh, that I've seen was Killing Them Softly, which I also was also was another film that was very well received by in in general, and I hated. Yes, I hated this. I remember watched that something. Wow, this is terrible. Yes. <laughs> um, so yes, but I, I keep Chopper has been on a list of things to watch for a, a good long time, but uh, I'm now trepidatious about actually going and watching it now. On the basis of yeah, another stuff. film I've I've owned for years, yeah. I'm not sure if I've watched it or not actually, but yes, I, I'm not looking forward to that having. I remembered how bad this is and I never forget how bad killing him softly was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, Scott. Well, we'll uh, move on from the a film focusing on someone forced to become a hitman by necessity to someone who's a hitman by profession, sort of. Yes. Yes, in Sicario, uh, in which Scott regrets his choice of film to watch the week before heading back to the northeast of Mexico. Yes. <laughs> in Sicario, uh, from another frequent Deacons collaborator, Denis Villeneuve, we are introduced to Emily Blunt's young FBI agent, Kate Mercer, and her younger partner, Daniel Kaluuya's Reggie Wayne, as they undertake a raid on a home that's suspected of holding suspects in a kidnapping case. This soon takes a turn both disgusting and fatal as they uncover that it's being used as a dumping ground for victims of drug traffic their bodies left in cavity walls to rot and booby-trapped, which sees a member of their squad killed. While the situation is given the gravity it deserves, Mercer and Wayne reflect that similar sorts of cases are happening with a pressing increase in frequency, and their efforts do not seem to be making much of an impact. So, when given the opportunity to join the task force, charged with curtailing the activities of the Mexican drug cartels on the USA soil, she accepts... It's no surprise that this unnamed cloak-and-dagger outfit is being headed up by an agency man, in this case Josh Brolin's Matt Graver. Matt seems amiable enough, although being that he's employed by the CIA, you're always left wondering exactly how he will stab people in the back, rather than if he will stab people in the back. (laughs) Graver's team appears to be composed mainly of special forces operatives, which should give some indication of how things are expected to go, supplemented as required by FBI or US Marshals to give the barest sheen of legal legitimacy to their non-nobbing-sanctioned activities. There's also room for the odd special advisor, such as Benicio del Toro's mysterious Alejandro, who I'm sure is on the up and up. Nothing exudes trustworthiness more than not revealing your surname. <laughs> <laughs> and so they go, trying to loosen the cartel's stranglehold in the Mexican border towns, and generally shake things up a bit, with Kate refusing the backseat role she'd been given, and getting rather more involved than was perhaps intended. This has the adjunct effect of the cartel's painting a target on her back, which of course affects Kate's private life, and her physical and mental security. Uh, saying much more about the plot specifics won't add very much to the review but in general it's more concerned with the friction between doing what's effective and what's legal and almost all of the interpersonal conflict comes from these differences in ideology and how these or if these can come into balance all of which sounds much drier than I intend to talk about it especially given that Sicario pulls off so many moments of extreme tension Uh, much like uh, Villeneuve's previous prisoners it mines some very dark subject matter to create some very believable human reactions and is as well characterised as anything you could hope to see in multiplex and as it turns out having some understanding of the characters helps the tension when they're thrown into danger who'd have thunk it being on the front line of the situation displayed ample opportunity for danger and there's 
two outstanding set-piece examples of ratcheting up tension that I'm reluctant to even vaguely detail, in case that proves the mildness of spoilers, but two very real nail-biting uh, uh, sections in this. Uh, Deacons captures the dusty western feel that the script occasionally evokes as the rule of law shakes a little bit and the way of the gun threatens to replace it. Shots of the high desert are suitably bleak, but it's probably the shots captured in the border tunnels that's the high point here, and in retrospect, useful prototyping for 1917's trenches. Uh, special mention must also be made of the pounding, oppressive score from Johan Johansson, which provides effective backup to the threats on screen. Uh, so, technically and dramatically, Sicario puts very few feet wrong and comes very highly recommended, although you're better off pretending that the Needless sequel does not exist. Also, subtitlers, learn how to spell Monterey. <laughs> yeah, um, first of all, with your comments about Alejandro, I'm now worried about what your um, theory is about Madonna. Mm, the worst. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's worked um, Roger Deakins like this has worked with Denis Villeneuve three times mm. and I specifically selected this one although I had to get the approval from yourself of course but specifically selected this one because of the slightly different challenges that this film had from a lot of the other ones that we could have picked mm-hmm. um, a lot of handheld camera work um, and it's maybe testament to how effective that tunnel sequence is that I actually can remember that as being considerably, a considerably larger part of the running time than it actually yeah, is. Yeah, actually fairly brief. Yeah, and so like you know, the confines of going through well, the confines, the the tight spaces, whereas like the, the landscape shots kind of a given. Yeah, whereas it's kind of that close up action shot was more interesting to revisit. I'm pleased to find this. It it looks great. It sounds great. It's, it's such a tense film. Yeah. I actually really, really do like the score. It's it's quite easy for a score to be prescriptive rather than supportive of the tone the film's going for. This one absolutely manages it the right way. Yeah. It's such a tense, tense film. Um I, I don't have a lot more to to say than what you said. Got other, I will echo sentiments about the the unnecessary um, sequel that also kind of missed the point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the sequel's basically more turned into a. It's more of just a, an action thriller rather than like. Was this film has something to say? Yeah, it it's really good. Yeah, though you, you couldn't really go wrong with any of Roger Deakins' collaborations with Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, Prisoners is like goes on probably thirty minutes too long, but still wonderfully tense and the, the rain soaked atmosphere of the. Of prisoners actually is, looks really nice in that it looks really gloomy yeah. and miserable. <laughs> yes. Blade Runner 2049, definitely there's a lot of CGI stuff in there, mm. but certainly that's a pretty film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, what I had in mind, Scott, there to talk about was like other stuff that Roger Deakinson was involved with that you might want to check out, but I'm looking through his list like, yeah, yeah, it's largely all of it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's when you look at the list, there, there's certainly in terms of what Deacon's attributed to it, in terms of all the way it's shot, all the ones, all, all these that I've seen, they all look great. Yeah. And due to the people he tends to collaborate with, the the films also wind up being great for the most part. Uh, there's a few I'd quite like to go back. Like I can't remember. I don't think I liked um, the House of Sand and Fog all that much on a narrative level, but I remember it looking gorgeous. Um, that's what, that's yeah. what I actually don't remember the look of it very much, but I remember really liking the film. Mm. The Hurricane I like narratively. It's not 
I don't remember it looking particularly interesting visually, so that's something I want to watch again anyway. I'll always watch Denzel Washington. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some I'm not particularly inclined to return to. In time? The Village by uh, <laughs> the village by M. Night Shyamalan and Ding Dong, yeah. which I hadn't realised till today was uh, Roger Deakins' joint. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Valley of Ela, which came out the same year as No Country for Old Men and The Assassination of Jesse James the Coward Robert Ford. Mm-hmm. Only, it was a one for um, three hit rate that year. Yeah. <laughs> And the Valley of Lab was not good. Right, there are a couple related to The Reader. That was a film that got all the praise and you and I both thought, yep, yeah, this is rubbish and stupid. Yes. It was largely the, the gist of why we talked about it. But when you, like, Jarhead, I remember being pretty visually striking. Mm-hmm. Skyfall, which I've mentioned during the podcast, looks amazing. Yeah. It's probably the best looking Bond film. Particularly that portion in the end in the Scottish Islands. Mm-hmm. Shawshank Redemption, I love anyway, and a couple of. I mean, I suppose in terms of visuals for a lot of the film, there's not a lot to see because you're in the confines of a prison, you're limited. But there are a couple of real standout shots, like when Andy is standing in the rain, and the camera pulls up above him. Yeah, with lit with the lightning, it's beautiful shots like that. Personal services. That is not a good <laughs> film. Just a, what we'd actually intended to do last month was a, a Terry Jones retrospective. Um, I got ahead of Scott and watched all of the Terry Jones films, and the ones that aren't Monty Python are all terrible. <laughs> so I wouldn't recommend personal services. I didn't realise till right now, Scott, that he'd done that. I have this thing, and I think I've mentioned it before to you, that every film I watch, I'm like, right, I'm going to pay attention to the credits just to see the producers, the writers, DOP and stuff. And every single film for my entire life, within about 10 seconds, I've stopped noticing the credits. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just watching the film instead and, and, it's, and I don't always remember to go and look at my IMDb afterwards but look, yeah there's a pretty good chance if you look at a, a film that with Roger Deakins' director of photography it's going to at least look pretty damn yes. yes, you're not really going to go wrong with any of his collaborations with the Coen brothers apart from the Lady Killers and that problem's not his I don't know how that went so wrong although the films that aren't their scripts are definitely their worst ones yeah. and there's the occasional adaptation like True Grit that actually works really well but um, I would generally avoid them so what we're saying is he, the boy done good so watch some of his films and uh, I think that's all we need to say about that really did you you didn't catch up with Rango um, I did not re-watch it no um, I had that in mind to watch I never. I didn't have time for it either I thought it would be interesting to see how this legendary DOP dealt with computer-generated animated film and see whether you could see any of the influence in there. Yeah. As much as I remember, I think probably I can. There's sort of elements of things, like bits of True Grit and like the desert scenes in Sicario that you can see that maybe that, that was being led by Deacons more than Gore Verbinski, the director. Yeah. But that's something I may revisit in the future to see if I can see that influence more. Although... To be honest, I think for a film like that, you'd probably have to watch some sort of making of to really appreciate how yeah, who's doing what was coming yeah. into it. Yeah, for something that's clearly all imaginary. Yeah, um, and which the CG department's probably got as much of an input as Deacon's would on a lot of aspects of it as well. You would think. Uh, yeah, mm. but uh, yeah, his films look amazing. Th- that'll wrap us up for today. Um, 
we'll be back soon enough with another podcast until then if you'd like to get in touch with us for this or any other reason please hit us up on Twitter's there at Fuzz and Film or email us podcast at fuzzandfilm.com but until next time I shall bid you adieu and I'm sure the will too nos vemos en la cara bay.